Section Two of the Brown Fairy Book. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Brown Fairy Book by Andrew Lang. What the Rose Did to the Cypress, Part Two. Then she took the bow and quiver of arrows, the sword and the dagger, out of a box, and the prince let fall a bismillah and grit them all on. Then Jamila of the hoary face produced two saddlebags of ruby-red silk, one filled with roasted fowl and little cakes, and the other with stones of price. Next she gave him a horse, as swift as the breeze of the morning, and she said, Accept all these things from me. Ride till you come to a rising ground, at no great distance from here, where there is a spring. It is called the Place of Gifts, and you must stay there one night. There you will see many wild beasts, lions, tigers, leopards, apes, and so on. Before you get there, you must capture some game. On the long road beyond there dwells a lion king. If other beasts did not fear him, they would ravage the whole country and let no one pass. The lion is a red transgressor, so when he comes, rise and do him reverence. Take a cloth and rub the dust and earth from his face, then set the game you have taken before him, well cleansed, and lay the hands of respect on your breast. When he wishes to eat, take your knife and cut pieces of the meat and set them before him with a bow. In this way you will enfold that Lion King in perfect friendship, and he will be most useful to you, and you will be safe from molestation by the Negroes. When you go on from the Palace of Gifts, be sure you do not take the right-hand road. Take the left, for the other leads by the Negro Castle, which is known as the Place of Clashing Swords, and where there are forty Negro captains, each over three thousand or four thousand more. Their chief is Tamertak. Further on than this is the home of the Simurg. Having stored these things in the prince's memory, she said, you will see everything happens just as I have said. Then she escorted him a little way, they parted, and she went home to mourn his absence. Prince Almus, relying on the causer of causes, rode on to the place of gifts and dismounted at the platform. Everything happened, just as Jamila had foretold. When one or two watches of the night had passed, he saw that the open ground around him was full of such stately and splendid animals as he had never seen before. By and by they made way for a wonderfully big lion, which was eighty yards from nose to tail tip, and was a magnificent creature. The prince advanced and saluted it. It proudly drooped its head in forelocks and paced to the platform. Seventy or eighty others were with it, and now encircled it at a little distance. It laid its right paw over its left, and the prince took the kerchief Jamila had given him for the purpose and rubbed the dust and earth from its face, then brought forward the game he had prepared, and crossing his hands respectfully on his breast, stood waiting before it. When it wished for food, he cut off pieces of the meat and put them in its mouth. The serving lions also came near, and the prince would have stayed his hand, but the king lions signed to him to feed them too. This he did laying the meat on the platform. Then the king lion beckoned the prince to come near and said, 
sleep at ease. My guards will watch. So, surrounded by the lion guard, he slept till dawn, when the king lion said goodbye and gave him a few of his own hairs and said, When you are in any difficulty, burn one of these and I will be there. Then it went off into the jungle. Prince Almas immediately started. He rode till he came to the parting of the ways. He remembered quite well that the right-hand way was short and dangerous, but he bethought himself, too, that whatever was written on his forehead would happen, and took the forbidden road. By and by he saw a castle, and knew from what Jamila had told him that it was the place of clashing swords. He would have liked to go back by the way he had come, but courage forbade, and he said, What has been preordained from eternity will happen to me, and went on towards the castle. He was thinking of tying his horse to a tree, which grew near the gate, when a negro came out and spied him. Ha, said the wretch to himself, this is good. Taramtak has not eaten man-meat for a long time, and is craving for some. I will take this creature to him. He took hold of the prince's reins and said, Dismount, man-child, come to my master. He has wanted to eat man-meat for this long time back. What nonsense are you saying, said the prince, and other such words. When the negro understood that he was being abused, he cried, Come along, I will put you in such a state that the birds of the air will weep for you. Then the prince drew the scorpion of Solomon and struck him, struck him on the leathern belt, and shore him through so that sword came out on the other side. He stood upright for a while, muttered some words, put his hands out to seize the prince, then fell in two and surrendered his life. There was water close at hand, and the prince made his ablution, and then said, Oh, my heart, a wonderful task lies upon you. A second negro came out of the fort, and seeing what had been done, went back and told his chief. Others wished to be doubled, and went out, and every one the scorpion of Solomon made too. Then Taramtak sent for a giant negro named Chilmak, who in the day of battle was worth three hundred and said to him, I shall thank you to fetch me that man. Chilmak went out, tall as a tower, and bearing a shield of eight millstones, and as he walked he shouted, Ho, oh, Blunderhead, by what right do you come to our country and kill our people? Come, make two of me. As the prince was despicable in his eyes, he tossed aside his club and rushed to grip him with his hands. He caught him by the collar, and tucked him under his arm, and set off with him to Taramtek. But the prince drew the dagger of Timus, and thrust it upward through the giant's armpit, for its full length. This made Chilmak drop him, and try to pick up his club, but when he stooped, the mighty sword shore him through at the waist. When news of his champion's death reached Taramtek, he put himself at the head of an army of his negroes, and led them forth. Many fell before the magic sword, and the prince labored on in spite of weakness and fatigue till he was almost worn out. In a moment of respite from attack, he struck his fire-steel and burned a hair of the king lion, and he had just succeeded in this when the negroes charged again, and all but took him prisoner. Suddenly from behind the distant veil of the desert appeared an army of lions led by their king. What brings these scourges of heaven here? cried the negroes. They came roaring up 
and put fresh life into the prince. He fought on, and when he struck on the belt, the wearer fell in two, and when on the head, he cleft to the waist. Then the ten thousand mighty lions joined the fray and tore in pieces man and horse. To Ramtak was left alone. He would have retired into his fort, but the prince shouted, Whither away, accursed one, are you fleeing before me? At these defiant words the chief shouted back, Welcome, man, come here, and I will soften you to wax beneath my club. Then he hurled his club at the prince's head, but it fell harmless because the prince had quickly spurred his horse forward. The chief, believing he had hit him, was looking down for him, when all at once he came up behind and cleft him to the waist and sent him straight to hell. The Lion King greatly praised the dashing courage of Prince Almas. They went together into the castle of clashing swords and found it adorned and fitted in princely fashion. In it was a daughter of Taramtak, still a child. She sent a message to Prince Almas, saying, O king of the world, choose this slave to be your handmaid. Keep her with you where you go, there she will go. He sent for her, and she kissed his feet and received the Mussulman faith at his hands. He told her he was going a long journey on important business, and that when he came back he would take her and her possessions to his own country, but for the present she must stay in the castle. Then he made over the fort and all that was in it to the care of the lion, saying, Guard them, brother, let no one lay a hand on them. He said good-bye, chose a fresh horse from the chief's stable, and once again took the road. After traveling many stages and for many days, he reached a plain of marvelous beauty and refreshment. It was carpeted with flowers, roses, tulips, and clover. It had lovely lawns, and amongst them running water. This choicest place on earth filled him with wonder. There was a tree such as he had never seen before. Its branches were alike, but it bore flowers and fruit of a thousand kinds. Near it a reservoir had been fashioned out of four sorts of stone, touchstone, pure stone, marble, and lodestone. In and out of it flowed water like a tear. The prince felt sure that this must be the place of the Simurg, he dismounted, turned his horse loose to graze, ate some food Jamila had given him, drank of the stream, and lay down to sleep. He was still dozing when he was aroused by the neighing and pawing of his horse. When he could see clearly, he made out a mountain-like dragon, whose heavy breast crushed the stones beneath it into putty. He remembered the thousand names of God, and took the bow of Salah from its case and three arrows from the quiver. He bound the dagger of Timus firmly to his waist and hung the scorpion of Solomon round his neck. Then he set an arrow on the string and released it with such force that it went in at the monster's eye right up to the notch. The dragon writhed on itself and belched forth an evil vapor and beat the ground with its head till the earth quaked. Then the prince took a second arrow and shot it into its throat. It drew in its breath, and would have sucked the prince into its maw, but when he was within striking distance, he drew his sword, and having committed himself to God, struck a mighty blow which cut the creature's neck down to the gullet. The foul vapor of the beast and horror at its strangeness now overcame the prince, and he fainted. 
When he came to himself, he found that he was drenched in the gore of the dead monster. He rose and thanked God for his deliverance. The nest of the Simarg was in the wonderful tree above him, and in it were young birds. The parents were away searching for food. They always told the children before they left them not to put their heads out of the nest, but today, at the noise of the fight below, they looked down so they saw the whole affair. By the time the dragon had been killed, they were very hungry and set up a clamor for food. The prince, therefore, cut up the dragon and fed them with it, bit by bit, till they had eaten the whole. He then washed himself and lay down the rest, and he was still asleep when the Simurg came home. As a rule, the young birds raised a clamor of welcome when their parents came near, but on this day they were so full of dragon meat that they had no choice. They had to go to sleep. As they flew nearer, the old birds saw the prince lying under the tree and no signs of life in the nest. They thought that misfortune, which for so many earlier years had befallen them, had again happened, and that their nestlings had disappeared. They had never been able to find out the murderer, and now suspected the prince. He has eaten our children and sleeps after it. He must die, said the father bird, and flew back to the hills and clawed up a huge stone, which he meant to let fall on the prince's head. But his mates said, Let us look into the nest first, for to kill an innocent person would condemn us at the day of resurrection. They flew nearer, and presently the young birds woke and cried, Mother, what have you brought for us? And they told the whole story of the fight, and how they were alive only by the favor of the young man under the tree, and of his cutting up the dragon, and of their eating it. The mother bird then remarked, Truly, father, you are about to do a strange thing, and a terrible sin has been averted from you. Then the Simurg flew off to a distance with a great stone and dropped it. It sank down to the very middle of the earth. Coming back, the Simarg saw that a little sunshine fell upon the prince through the leaves, and it spread its wings and shaded him till he woke. When he got up, he salaamed to it, who returned his greetings with joy and gratitude, and caressed him, and said, O youth, tell me true, who are you, and where are you going? And how did you cross that pitiless desert, where never yet foot of man has trod? The prince told his story from beginning to end, and finished by saying, Now it is my heart's wish that you should help me to get to the walk of the Caucasus. Perhaps by your favor I shall accomplish my task and avenge my brother. In reply, the Simurg first blessed the deliverer of his children, and then went on. What you have done no child of man has ever done before. You assuredly have a claim on all my help, for every year up till now the dragon has come here and has destroyed my nestlings, and I have never been able to find who was the murderer and to avenge myself. By God's grace, you have removed my children's powerful foe. I regard you as a child of my own. Stay with me. I will give you everything you desire, and I will establish a city here for you, and will furnish it with every requisite. I will give you the land of the Caucasus, and will make its princess subject to you. Give up the journey to Wak. It is full of risks, and the jinns there will certainly kill you. But nothing could move the prince, and seeing this, the bird went on. Well, so be it. When you wish to set forth, you must go into the plain 
and take seven head of deer, and must make a watertight bags of their hides, and keep their flesh in seven portions. Seven seas lie on our way. I will carry you over them. But if I have not food and drink, we shall fall into the sea and be drowned. When I ask for it, you must put food and water into my mouth. So shall we make the journey safely. The prince did all as he was told. Then they took flight. They crossed the seven seas, and at each one the prince fed the Simurg. When they alighted on the shore of the last sea, it said, O oh, my son, there lies your road. Follow it to the city. Take thee three feathers of mine, and if you are in difficulty, burn one, and I will be with you in the twinkling of an eye. The prince walked on in solitude till he reached the city. He went in and wandered about through all quarters and through bazaars and lanes and squares, in the least knowing from whom he could ask information about the riddle of Mir Afruz. He spent seven days thinking it over in silence. From the first day of his coming he had made friends with a young cloth merchant, and a great liking had sprung up between them. One day he said abruptly to his companion, Oh, dear friend, I wish you would tell me what the rose did to the cypress, and what the sense of the riddle is. The merchant started and exclaimed, If there were not brotherly affection between us, I would cut off your head for asking me this. If you meant to kill me, retorted the prince, you would still have first to tell me what I want to know. When the merchant saw that the prince was in deadly earnest, he said, If you wish to hear the truth of the matter, you must wait upon our king. There is no other way. No one else will tell you. I have a well-wisher at the court named Farouk Fall, and will introduce you to him. That would be excellent, cried the prince. A meeting was arranged between Farouk Fall and Amas. And then the emir took him to the king's presence and introduced him as a stranger and traveler who had come from afar to sit in the shadow of King Sinubar. Now the Simurg had given the prince a diamond, weighing thirty miscals, and he offered this to the king, who at once recognized its value and asked where it had been obtained. I, your slave, once had riches and state and power. There are many such stones in my country. On my way here I was plundered at the castle of clashing swords, and I saved this one thing only hidden in my bathing cloth. In return for the diamond, King Cinnabar showered gifts of much greater value, for he remembered that it was the last possession of the prince. He showed the utmost kindness and hospitality, and gave his wazir orders to install the prince in the royal guest house. He took much pleasure in his visitor's society. They were together every day and spent their time most pleasantly. Several times the king said, Ask me for something that I may give it to you. One day he so pressed to know what would pleasure the prince that the latter said, I have only one wish, and that I will name to you in private. The king at once commanded everyone to withdraw, and then Prince Almas said, The desire of my life is to know what the rose did to the cypress, and what meaning there is in the words. The king was astounded. In God's name, if anyone else had said that to me, I should have cut off his head instantly. The prince heard this in silence, and presently so beguiled the king with pleasant talk that to kill him was impossible. 
Time flew by. The king again and again begged the prince to ask some gift of him, and always received the same reply. I wish for your majesty's welfare. What more can I desire? One night there was a banquet, and cup-bearers carried round gold and silver cups of sparkling wine, and singers with sweetest voices contended for the prize. The prince drank from the king's own cup, and when his head was hot with wine, he took a lute from one of the musicians, and placed himself on the carpet border, and sang and sang, till he witched away the sense of all who listened. Applause and compliments rang from every side. The king filled his cup, and called the prince, and gave it to him, and said, Name your wish, it is yours. The prince drained off the wine, and answered, O king of the world, learn and know that I have only one aim in life, and that is to know what the rose did to the cypress. Never yet, replied the king, has any man come out from that question alive. If this is your only wish, so be it, I will tell you. But I will do this on one condition only, namely, that when you have heard, you will submit yourself to death. To this the prince agreed, and said, I set my foot firmly on this compact. The king then gave an order to an attendant. A costly carpet overlaid with European velvet was placed near him, and a dog was led in by a golden and jeweled chain, and sat upon the splendid stuffs. A band of fair girls came in, and stood round it in waiting. Then, with ill words, twelve negroes dragged in a lovely woman, fettered on hands and feet, and meanly dressed, and they set her down on the bare floor. She was extraordinarily beautiful, and shamed the glorious sun. The king ordered a hundred stripes to be laid on her tender body. She sighed a long sigh. Food was called for, and tablecloths were spread. Delicate meats were set before the dog, and water given it in a royal cup of Chinese crystal. When it had eaten its fill, its leavings were placed before the lovely woman, and she was made to eat them. She wept, and her tears were pearls. She smiled, and her lips shed roses. Pearls and flowers were gathered up and taken to the treasury. Now, said the king, you have seen these things, and your purpose is fulfilled. Truly, said the prince, I have seen things which I have not understood. What do they mean, and what is the story of them? Tell me, and kill me. Then said the king, The woman you see there in chains is my wife. She is called Gull, the Rose and I am Cinnabar, the Cypress. One day I was hunting, and became very thirsty. After a great search, I discovered a well in a place so secret that neither bird nor beast nor man could find it without labor. I was alone. I took my turban for a rope and my cap for a bucket. There was a good deal of water, but when I let down my rope, something caught it, and I could not in any way draw it back. I shouted down into the well, O servant of God, whoever you are, why do you deal unfairly with me? I am dying of thirst. Let go in God's name. A cry came up in answer. O servant of God, we have been in the well a long time. In God's name, get us out. After trying a thousand schemes, I drew up two blind women. They said they were Perry, and that their king had blinded them in his anger and left them in the well alone. Now, they said, if you will get us the cure for our blindness, 
We will devote ourselves to your service and will do whatever you wish. What is the cure for your blindness? Not far from this place, they said, a cow comes up from the great sea to graze. A little of her dung would cure us. We would be eternally your debtors. Do not let the cow see you, or she will assuredly kill you. With renewed strength and spirit, I went to the shore. There I watched the cow come up from the sea, graze, and go back. Then I came out of my hiding, took a little of her dung, and conveyed it to the peri. They rubbed it in their eyes, and by the divine might saw again. They thanked heaven and me, and then considered what they could do to show their gratitude to me. Our peri king, they said, has a daughter whom he keeps under his own eye, and thinks the most lovely girl on earth. In good sooth, she has not her equal. Now we will get you into her house, and you must win her heart, and if she has an inclination for another, you must drive it out and win her for yourself. Her mother loves her so dearly that she has no ease but in her presence, and she will give her to no one in marriage. Teach her to love you, so that she cannot exist without you. But if the matter becomes known to her mother, she will have you burned in a fire. Then you must beg, as a last favor, that your body may be anointed with oil, so that you may burn more quickly and be spared torture. If the Perry King allows this favor, we too will manage to be your anointers, and we will put an oil on you such that if you were a thousand years in the fire, not a trace of burning would remain. In the end, the two Perrys took me to the girl's house. I saw her sleeping daintily. She was most lovely, and I was so amazed at the perfection of her beauty that I stood with senses lost and did not know if she were real or a dream. When at last I saw that she was a real girl, I returned thanks that I, the runner, had come to my goal, and that I, the seeker, had found my treasure. When the Perry opened her eyes, she asked in a fright, Who are you? Have you come to steal? How did you get here? Be quick. Save yourself from this whirlpool of destruction, for the demons and Perrys who guard me will wake and seize you. But love's arrow had struck me deep, and the girl, too, looked kindly on me. I could not go away. For some months I remained hidden in her house. We did not dare to let her mother know of our love. Sometimes the girl was very sad, and fearful lest her mother should come to know. One day her father said to her, Sweetheart, for some time, I have noticed that your beauty is not what it was. How is this? Has sickness touched you? Tell me that I may seek a cure. Alas, there was no way of concealing the mingled delight and anguish of our love. From secret it became known. I was put in prison, and the world grew dark to my rose, bereft of her lover. The Perry King ordered me to be burnt, and said, Why have you, a man, done this perfidious thing in my house? His demons and Perrys collected amberwood, and made a pile, and would have set me on it, when I remembered the word of life which the two Perrys I had rescued had breathed into my ear, and I asked that my body might be rubbed with oil, to release me the sooner from torture. This was allowed, and the two contrived to be the anointers. I was put into the fire, and it was kept up for seven days and nights. By the will of the great king, it left no trace upon me. 
At the end of the week, the Perry King ordered the ashes to be cast upon the dust heap, and I was found alive and unharmed. Perry, who had seen Gaul consumed by her love for me, now interceded with the king and said, It is clear that your daughter's fortunes are bound up with his, for the fire has not hurt him. It is best to give him the girl, for they love one another. He is king of what of Quaff, and you will find none better. To this the king agreed, and made formal marriage between Gaul and me. You now know the price I paid for this faithless creature. O prince, remember our compact. I remember, said the prince, but tell me what brought Queen Gaul to her present pass. One night, continued King Cinnabar, I was aroused by feeling Gaul's hands and feet deadly cold against my body. I asked her where she had been to get so cold. She said she had to go out. Next morning, when I went to my stable, I saw that two of my horses, Windfoot and Tiger, were thin and worn out. I reprimanded the groom and beat him. He asked where his fault lay, and said that every night my wife took one or the other of these horses and rode away, and came back only just before dawn. A flame kindled in my heart, and I asked myself where she could go and what she could do. I told the groom to be silent, and when next Gull took a horse from the stable, to saddle another quickly and bring it to me. That day I did not hunt, but stayed at home to follow the matter up. I lay down as usual at night and pretended to fall asleep. When I seemed safely off, Gull got up and went to the stable, as was her custom. That night it was Tiger's turn. She rode off on him, and I took Windfoot and followed. With me went that dog you see, a faithful friend who never left me. When I came to the foot of those hills which lie outside the city, I saw Gull dismount and go towards a house which some negroes have built there. Over against the door was a high seat, and on it lay a giant negro before whom she salaamed. He got up and beat her till she was marked with wails, but she uttered no complaint. I was dumbfounded, for once, when I had struck her with a rose stalk, she had complained and fretted for three days. Then the negro said to her, How now, ugly one, and shaven head? Why are you so late, and why are you not wearing wedding garments? She answered him, That person did not go to sleep quickly, and stayed home all day, so that I was not able to adorn myself. I came as soon as I could. In a little while he called her to sit beside him, but this was more than I could bear. I lost control of myself and rushed upon him. He clutched my collar, and we grappled in a death struggle. Suddenly she came behind me, caught my feet and threw me. While he held me on the ground, she drew out my own knife and gave it to him. I should have been killed but for that faithful dog, which seized his throat and pulled him down and pinned him to the ground. Then I got up and dispatched the wretch. There were four other negroes at the place, three I killed, and the fourth got away and has taken refuge beneath the throne of Mir Afruz, daughter of King Quimus. I took Gaul back to my palace, and from that time till now I have treated her as a dog is treated, and I have cared for my dog as though it were my wife. Now you know what the rose did to the cypress, and now 
You must keep compact with me. I shall keep my word, said the prince, but may a little water be taken to the roof, so I may make my last ablution. To this request the king consented. The prince mounted to the roof, and getting into a corner, struck his fire-steel, and burned one of the Sirug's feathers in the flame. Straightway it appeared, and by the majesty of its presence made the city quake. It took the prince on its back, and soared away to the zenith. After a time, King Cinnabar said, That young man is a long time on the roof. Go and bring him here. But there was no sign of the prince upon the roof. Only, far away in the sky, the Simurg was seen carrying him off. When the king heard of his escape, he thanked heaven that his hands were clean of his blood. Up and up flew the Simurg, till the earth looked like an egg resting on an ocean. At length it dropped straight down to its own place, where the kind prince was welcomed by the young birds, and most hospitably entertained. He told the whole story of the rose and the cypress, and then, laden with gifts which the Simarg had gathered from cities far and near, he set his face for the castle of clashing swords. The Lion King came out to meet him. He took the Negro chief's daughter, whose name was also Gull, in lawful marriage, and then marched with her and her possessions and her attendants to the place of gifts. Here they halted for a night, and at dawn said goodbye to the King Lion and set out for Jamila's country. When the Lady Jamila heard that Prince Almas was near, she went out with many a fair handmaiden to give him a loving reception. Their meeting was joyful, and they went together to the garden palace. Jamila summoned all her notables, and in their presence her marriage with the prince was solemnized. A few days later she entrusted her affairs to her wazir, and made preparations to go with the prince to his own country. Before she started she restored all the men whom her sister Latifa had bewitched to their own forms, and received their blessings, and set them forward to their homes. The wicked Latifa herself she left quite alone in her garden-house. When all was ready, they set out with all her servants and slaves, all her treasure and goods, and journeyed at ease to the city of King Quimus. When King Quimus heard of the approach of such a great company, he sent out his wazir to give the prince honorable meeting, and to ask what had procured him the favor of the visit. The prince sent back word that he had no thought of war, but he wrote, Learn and know, King Quimus, that I am here to end the crimes of your insolent daughter, who has tyranniously done to death many kings and king's sons, and hung their heads on your citadel. I am here to give her the answer to her riddle. Later on he entered the city, beat boldly on the drums, and was conducted to the presence. The king entreated him to have nothing to do with a riddle, for that no man has come out of it alive. O king, replied the prince, it is to answer it that I am here. I will not withdraw. Merifrus was told that one man more had staked his head on her question, and this was one who said he knew the answer. At the request of the prince, all the officers and nobles of the land were summoned to hear his reply to the princess. All assembled, and the king and his queen Gulruk, and the girl and the prince were there. The prince addressed Mira Fruz. What is the question you ask? 
"'What did the rose do to the cypress?' she rejoined. The prince smiled and turned and addressed the assembly. "'You who are experienced men and versed in affairs, did you ever know or hear or see anything of this matter?' "'No,' they answered. "'No one has ever known or heard or seen aught about it. It is an empty fancy.' From whom, then, did the princess hear of it? This empty fancy it is that has done many a servant of God to death. All saw the good sense of his words and showed their approval. Then he turned to the princess. Tell us the truth, princess, who told you of this thing? I know it hair by hair and in and out. But if I tell you what I know, who is there that can say I speak the truth? You must produce the person who can confirm my words. Her heart sank, for she feared that her long-kept secret was now to be noised abroad. But she said merely, Explain yourself. I shall explain myself fully when you bring here the Negro whom you hide beneath your throne. Here the king shouted in wonderment, Explain yourself, young man. What Negro does my daughter hide beneath her throne? That, said the prince, you will see if you order to be brought here the negro who will be found beneath the throne of the princess messengers were forthwith dispatched to the garden house and after a while they returned bringing a negro whom they had discovered in a secret chamber underneath the throne of mirafruz dressed in a dress of honor and surrounded with luxury the king was overwhelmed with astonishment but the girl had taken heart again she had had time to think that perhaps the prince had heard of the presence of the negro and knew no more. So she said haughtily, Prince, you have not answered my riddle. Oh, most amazingly impudent person, cried he, do you not yet repent? Then he turned to the people and told them the whole story of the rose and the cypress, of King Cinnabar and Queen Gull. When he came to the killing of the Negroes, he said to the one who stood before them, You too were present. That is so. All happened as you have told it. There was great rejoicing in the court and all through the country over the solving of the riddle, and because now no more kings and princes would be killed. King Quimus made over his daughter to Prince Almas, but the latter refused to marry her and took her as his captive. He then asked that the heads should be removed from the battlements and given decent burial. This was done. He received from the king everything that belonged to Mir Afruz, her treasures of gold and silver, her costly stuffs and carpets, her household plenishings, her horses and camels, her servants and slaves. Then he returned to his camp and sent for Dil Aram, who came bringing her goods and chattels her gold and her jewels. When all was ready, Prince Almas set out for home, taking with him Jamila and Dilaram and Gaul, daughter of Taram Tak and the wicked Mirafruz, and all the belongings of the four, packed on horses and camels and in carts without number. As he approached the borders of his father's country, word of his coming went before him, and all the city came forth to give him welcome. King Saman Lapash, Jasmine, wearer of rubies, had so bewept the loss of his sons that he was now blind. When the prince had kissed his feet 
and received his blessings, he took from a casket a little collyrium of Solomon, which the Simurgh had given him, and which reveals the hidden things of earth, and rubbed it on his father's eyes. Light came, and the king saw his son. Mir Afruz was brought before the king, and the prince said, This is the murderer of your sons. Do with her as you will. The king fancied that the prince might care for the girl's beauty, and replied, You have humbled her. Do with her as you will. Upon this, the prince sent for four swift and strong horses, and had the negro bound to each one of them. Then each was driven to one of the four quarters, and he was tore in pieces like muslin. This frightened Mirafruz horribly, for she thought the same thing might be done to her. She cried out to the prince, O Prince Almas, what is hardest to get is most valued. Up till now I have been subject to no man, and no man has had my love. The many kings and king's sons who have died at my hands have died because it was their fate to die like this. In this matter I have not sinned. That was their fate from eternity, and from the beginning it was predestined that my fate should be bound up with yours. The prince gave ear to the argument from preordainment, and as she was a very lovely maiden, he took her too in lawful marriage. She and Jamila set up house together, and Dilaram and Gaul set up theirs, and the prince passed the rest of his life with the four in perfect happiness and in pleasant and sociable entertainment. Now has been told what the rose did to the cypress. Finished, finished, finished. End of section two. Recording by Richard Kilmer, Real Medina, Texas.